The White House's 2023 budget request includes a big increase for cybersecurity. The Biden administration is pushing zero trust and a bigger workforce for the main cyber agency. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, let's begin with the bottom first. How much money does the Biden administration want for cyber in 2023? Well, the White House's budget request includes $10.9 billion for cybersecurity-related spending in 2023. And that's a billion-dollar increase above what the Biden administration had requested last year. And so clearly, cybersecurity continues to be a big priority for this administration, kind of started last year's cybersecurity executive order and has continued this year with the new zero trust strategy that came out in February. And indeed, the strategies overview or the budget overview describes a strategic shift in the defense of federal infrastructure and service delivery. And that includes a shift to the zero trust security approach. And the about $11 billion that I mentioned in cybersecurity-related spending, that includes both cyber defenses at agencies and also cybersecurity-related research and standards work. So it's a pretty big bucket there, but it's a pretty big pot of money as well. I can almost remember when the entire federal IT budget was $10 billion, but that was back in the Polk administration. So zero trust does not cost zero, does it? Is there specific funding for zero trust? Well, it doesn't break it out in terms of specific funding for zero trust security across agencies. But there are a couple specific agencies that I wanted to highlight where zero trust is a big priority. And not by coincidence, those agencies were the ones that were hit by the SolarWinds uh, software supply chain attack back in 2020. The Treasury Department is one where they're seeking $215 million for the cybersecurity enhancement account, and that would help protect and defend agency systems and information. Just two years ago, that account stood at just $18 million. So there's a big increase there. And the budget request describes how that money would go toward a zero trust architecture at Treasury, which of course is targeted because of all the money passing through those systems. There's also the Department of Energy, which was hit by the SolarWinds attack. They're seeking $68 million for the chief information officer to have some planned investments addressing vulnerabilities stemming from solar winds and implement that zero trust architecture as well. All right. Pretty prescriptive on Congress's part, or excuse me, on the administration's part here. And the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, that's now the belly button to push here for the administration on cyber issues. What do they have planned or requested anyway for CISA? Yeah, well, the White House is requesting $2.5 billion for CISA in 2023. That's an increase above what they requested last year, but actually Congress went ahead and and increased the budget even further for 2022, up to $2.6 billion nearly. So this request would actually represent a little bit of a cut, but it's still maintaining a relatively high funding level for CISA. And of course, as the agency that is supposed to defend all of the executive branch and and also help industry on cybersecurity, that's that's a pretty big deal. They're also looking to increase CISA's staff by about 300 employees. They're, they're at about 2,400 full-time equivalent employees right now. The 2023 budget envisions a staff of about 2,740 employees. So not an insignificant increase in staff at CISA, which is getting more responsibilities by the day. Interesting. The one thing that did not make it into the request so far as I can tell is the money for the new headquarters for CISA in the DHS campus in Southeast D.C., but we'll have to see about that later on. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And what about the new National Cyber Director? Because that 
group has been kind of staffing up a little bit. Is there new funding there for 2023 requested? Yeah, that's right. They they do have new funding in this request, $22 million. That would be a little bit of a bump above its current funding, which is $21 million for this year. And that was included in the infrastructure bill. That was that office's round of initial funding, startup funding, if you will. And they're working toward getting a staff of about 75 people. So they're they're working on staffing up. They're working on big cyber policy and strategy, looking to tie together all the different agencies on that front. So this request would kind of continue to allow that office to staff up and, and coordinate cyber policy across government. All right. You do have, I think, confluence of what the administration wants and what Congress wants with respect to cybersecurity. Have you heard any reaction from Capitol Hill? You know, they always say, well, the budget, forget about it the minute it arrives. But in this case, maybe there's some agreement. What have you heard? Yeah. In, in cybersecurity's case, there's broad agreement about the need for funding for for that area. And, and certainly for CISA, I think the one response has been that's the budget request is great, but maybe they need more You've seen, you know, House Homeland Security Chairman Benny Thompson come out and say that they're committed to ensuring that they can continue to build out CISA's mission support capabilities. And you've also actually seen the ranking member on that committee, New York Republican John Katko, say that this cyber request was not enough and CISA should actually be on a path to become a $5 billion a year agency. So Congress is saying actually that they would probably add to what their administration has requested here, at least in CISA's case. And have you been able in your reporting yet to tie any of the technology modernization fund request to cybersecurity? Because a lot of the grants from the TMF have been for cyber that agencies have asked for. Yeah, well, you know, that's certainly tied into it. And the Technology Modernization Fund request sits at about $300 million in the 2023 budget request this year. So that could help agencies fund new cybersecurity improvements as well. And the total IT funding request for 2023 is $65 billion. So the administration is not exactly sitting still when it comes to IT investments at civilian agencies and, and then there's the whole Defense Department budget, which we haven't even talked about, but you could actually take all those numbers that we talked about and double them when you take into account the Defense Department budget. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, Welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, And we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, So my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best, and so we now have people who work for me all over the world, and as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five, Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective about my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling, not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com slash vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.